Jesus said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. What does Jesus's mission look like here? What's his mission here? What does Jesus's mission look like here? What does Jesus's mission look like here? What is Jesus's mission here? How do I know what Jesus's mission is? Good morning. Today on Father's Day, though, hopefully you got a root beer float on your way in. If not, there'll be more on your way out and uh, some of the cars and everything out there. We are in our series through the New Testament book of Acts, and we're actually in week 30. And uh, today we're going to give a little bit of a review of where we've been, and uh, in, starting in chapter 13. And then we're going to take a little bit different direction today. But before we do, let me pray. And we're just going to ask for the Spirit's help to understand the words he's written. Sound good? Let's pray. Father, thank you for Jesus. And thank you, Lord, for uh, your good grace to us through him. Father, we have no hope apart from him. And even as we'll see in your word this morning, Lord, uh, our faith in him alone and nothing else uh, gives us hope and joy and purpose and uh, new life. Holy Spirit, I pray you'd help me as I teach your word. Speak to me even as I speak, and uh, help us all to understand and to leave uh, changed and more like Christ. Father, thanks again for Jesus. He's our only hope, and it's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, Acts, Acts chapter 13 is where I'm going to kind of start with us today. Uh, In Acts chapter 13, we're actually going backwards. Last week, Brett Gleason was here from the Great Lakes District. He oversees church planting, multiplication. He covered Acts chapter 15 with us, uh, but I want to take you back just a little bit for, uh, you'll understand in a minute. In Acts chapter 13, we read about this brand new church uh, in Acts 11 through 13, really, up in this little city called Antioch, and it was the first place where believers in Jesus were ever called Christians, Christians, little, they, they were just like, they were like little Jesuses walking around in their character and in the way they loved and cared for one another, and so they earned that name. And here's what we read about that church in Acts chapter 13. There were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. It was a a multiracial, multi-ethnic church, and uh, it was growing. And we read this, that while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work To which I've called them. Then, after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and they sent them off. Well, where'd they send them? Well, they sent them off to do the work that they were called to do. Barnabas was originally from an island out in the Mediterranean Sea called Cyprus. And Paul and Barnabas take off from Antioch and they leave, They, they head down to the coast, hop on a ship, sail to the island of Cyprus, where Barnabas was from. And from Salimus all the way across to the other side of the island, they just keep preaching Jesus. They're telling everybody, 
You can read about it in Acts chapter 13, telling everybody about Jesus. It's where even when they get to the city of Paphos on the west coast, um, they run into the Roman tetrarch of that region who, who just overseed or proconsul that overseed that region of the Roman Empire. And there was a guy named Bar-Jesus who was a sorcerer trying to keep him from believing. And well, Paul, through the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit through Paul, I should say, blinded this man. And everybody in this, on this island knew about the goodness and grace and power of Jesus. Well, from there, they take off and they sail up to the mainland of Europe and they uh, land in a little city called Perga. At this point, one of their guys was with them. John Mark takes off back to Jerusalem. But Paul and Barnabas keep going. And they head north. And as they head north, they head to another city called Antioch. Just like you might think, oh, that's kind of strange. It's not the same Antioch. It's a different one. Just like there's multiple Milfords, right? We're in Milford, Indiana. My grandma actually used to live in Milford, Iowa. Uh, I have a friend here this morning, uh, Ryan, who's, let's just greet Ryan. He's a pastor of Watsika, in Watsika, of the of Trinity Church there, a free church, and he's on sabbatical, so don't bother him today, but just welcome him. Yeah. So uh, Ryan's a friend of mine, and uh, really grateful that you're here today, man. Um, but they went to Antioch, and I was going to say there's another Milford near him in Illinois. So they go to a different Antioch. Uh, in this area. And Paul just keeps preaching the gospel, telling people about Jesus. But the, the religious people in that area didn't want to hear it. And they, they drove him out of the city. So he takes off at the end of Acts chapter 13 and ends up in Iconium. Well, in Iconium, a similar pattern happens. He preaches the gospel and many people believe, but then when they start coming back, the religious leaders and the Jewish people are like, ah, I don't think so. And they causes an uproar, and so he flees to another city. And he takes off then to Lystra. And in Lystra, the same pattern happens. People believe, and there's excitement, but some of those from Antioch and Iconium follow Paul there. And they get there and stir up all kinds of trouble. And they even get to the point where Paul ends up being stoned. They took big rocks, not like little pebbles, but big rocks, and began just throwing them at him. Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and drug him out of, dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. Now, in that day, if you're going to stone somebody, it wasn't just like a little slap on the wrist, like a warning, right? It was like, if you stoned somebody, the goal was for them to be dead. And they looked at Paul, after this went on, assumed he was dead, and drug him out of the city. Laid him on the trash heap. Now, I think there's a good chance here this is the first time Paul dies, that he really did die, and God miraculously healed him and brought him back to life, or God just healed him miraculously from his wounds, because look what happens. The disciples come out around him, they gather about him, probably also assuming he's dead, and he rose up and he entered the city. And then on the next day, God healed him to the point that the next day he takes off and he goes to another city in that region, called Derby. Now, this whole region is known as Galatia. That's, the, that's the, that region. That's what it's called. It's modern-day Turkey, but it's known as Galatia. Now, Paul, after uh, the rest of chapter 14 in Acts, then he goes, uh, his, he could just go all the way back. They're going back to Antioch down here. He could have just come this way, but he goes the long way back because of his love for the churches that he had helped start. 
And he goes back through Lystra and Iconium and Antioch and uh, down through Pamphylia to Perga. That's incredible that he would walk right back into that storm. They passed, they came to Pamphylia, and when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Adaliah, which is another small city. If I put it on the map, you wouldn't be able to read it. It's so close to Perga. And they hop on a ship and they sail back to Antioch, the original one. And from there they sailed to Antioch where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together there, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time there with the disciples. Sometimes maybe you've heard of this referred to as Paul's first missionary journey. He was just out spreading the gospel and planting churches. And it concludes with him ending up back in Antioch. And then last week, Brett told us about how uh, some people started coming from Jerusalem to Antioch and, and trying to impose rules of uh, the Jewish law and of the Old Testament law on the believers there. And so Paul and Barnabas take off for Jerusalem, and there's a council before the, the leaders of the early church where they determine, no, there's, there's nothing to be added other than faith in Jesus Christ alone. If you're a follower of Jesus, you don't, you don't need to follow all the rules of the law to be right with God. You just need to have faith fully in Jesus Christ and him alone. So the issue in this day was the issue of circumcision, but sometimes we can add other qualifications onto the gospel as well, can't we, in our own context? Well, in between chapter 14 and 15, when all that happens, we read Paul stayed there for no little time. It means that he was there for a while. Word starts to trickle back to Paul about all those churches he had helped start in Galatia. And it wasn't a good word. So what Paul does is uh, he ends up writing a letter to them. And if that area is called Galatia, what do you suppose the name of the letter was he wrote? Galatians. You ever heard of that? A New Testament letter? The letter of Galatians. The letter to the Galatians. And so here's what we're going to do is we're working our way through Acts. We've got probably another full year yet to go to get all the way through it. And maybe longer based on what I'm going to tell you I'm going to do now. Is that every time we come to a spot where there's a break and Paul writes a letter to a group of churches he had visited, or sometimes to an individual that's in the New Testament, we're just going to take a week and do an overview of that letter. And then we'll pick up the story and keep going. So today, we're going to duck out of Acts in line with the story, and we're just going to give a brief overview of the New Testament letter to the Galatians. Or you'll hear me say sometimes the book of Galatians. It's a letter. And it was a letter written like letters were typically written in that day. Hey, I wonder, when you write a letter to somebody, do you still write letters? Okay, if you're right, well, let's pretend you're going back in time and you're going to sit down and be really sentimental and write a letter. How do you start it? You have like kind of a greeting, don't you? Dear so-and-so. Uh, and then you, you get into the body of the letter in the middle, and then at the end, what do you do? If it's a love letter, you sign your name, and you say, love, XOXOXO, and then your name, and then that's the end of the letter, right? So there's a, there's a, or a greeting, body of the letter, and a salutation. Well, letters in Paul's day followed a similar pattern, too. Uh, there was a salutation, uh, a greeting, I should say, and then an opening uh, and thanksgiving, the body of the letter, and then closing personal words, and then a farewell. And the letters in the New Testament followed that same 
pattern. There's a salutation and greeting, and in this part, it would identify the writer of the letter and who they were writing to. And then uh, added to the Thanksgiving piece was usually a prayer. In regular letters, sometimes it'd be a well wish, you know, for your health, and hey, I hope you're doing well and healthy and all this good, good wishes for you. In Christian letters, there was often a prayer written along with the letter. Then the body of the letter, then some closing personal remarks, and then a closing farewell. Well, let's dive into Galatians, and we're going to see this pattern start to show up as we get into the New Testament letter that Paul wrote to the Galatians, to the churches there. He wrote it to all these churches, to Antioch and Iconium and Lystra and Derbe. Paul, here's the salutation, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brothers who are with me. That's who's writing the letter. He writes this, he says, and then here's who he's writing to to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Do you see it? Just a normal everyday letter. And so if we go back to our list, we should expect the next thing that Paul's going to write is some kind of a prayer, some kind of a, hey, I'm so thankful for you. I love you guys so much. And in every letter in the New Testament, that's what Paul does, except for one. You know where he doesn't do it? In this letter. In this letter, there's no opening prayer. There's no thanksgiving for the people he's writing to. And do you know why? Because Paul's gotten word about what's going on in these churches and some of the things happening, and he is ticked. He is so angry. Galatians, if there's a letter in the New Testament that's like the angry letter, it's the letter to the Galatians. Paul is fired up. Check it out. Look what he does. He skips right over any kind of opening prayer or thanksgiving, and he says this. He says, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. He's like, guys, I was just there, like not that long ago. And then I came back through. And I preached to you the gospel, the grace of Jesus Christ and him alone. And I, just, I can't believe how quickly you're turning from that. I can't believe it. And then he's like, you're turning to a different gospel, but not that there is another one, is what he says, right? Because there's only one gospel, one good news. But he says, there are some who trouble you and they want to distort the gospel of Christ. And whoever these some people are, Paul is not a fan. Look what he says. He says, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, that, that salvation is by faith alone, in Christ alone, and it's all by God's grace alone, then let him be accursed. Your translation might say, let him be condemned. It, literally, you know what Paul's saying? If somebody comes, and, or even if I come, and they're preaching to you a different gospel than the one of uh, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, let him go to hell. Let him be accursed. Let him be condemned. It's not the gospel. It's a different one. Paul's whole point here is that we're saved by faith alone. That, that's the big point of the book of Galatians. It's all by faith in Christ. 
Faith alone in Christ alone, by God's grace alone. Another way to say it, it's Jesus. Our faith is in Jesus plus nothing else. Jesus plus nothing. Because Paul says, oh, what's going on here? Is he's, did you read what he said? He said, uh, you're, you're turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but some, there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel, which makes it a false gospel. They're adding to it. They're saying you need to trust Jesus and you need to follow all of these Jewish laws, like circumcision and dietary laws and all these other things. But no, it's, it's through faith alone in Christ alone. You can't earn your salvation. It's all by grace. Now imagine when these letters were written to churches, right? Here's what would happen. It would get sent in and not, it didn't get like spread out on email or texted out to everybody. Like somebody got the letter in the church and then the church met and a leader in the church would get up, open the letter. Hey, we got a letter from Paul today. Let me read it to you. And it starts off with this nice greeting from Paul. You know, it's from Paul and all my brothers who are with me to all the churches in Galatia. Oh, remember Paul? He's such a great guy. I love that guy. Remember when he was about dead? Or maybe he was dead and God raised him back up. He was incredible. And I can't wait to hear what he says. And then you know what they're expecting right after that little greeting? Paul's prayers for them, his well wishes, some kind of I'm so thankful for you. And instead they hear, I am astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who called you in his grace. Like, well, is Paul mad? And they keep reading. Clearly he is, right? Not that there is another one, but there's some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Some maybe started squirming, realizing, well, that might be me. And then they read the next verse where Paul says, and if anybody is doing that, let him be accursed. Let him be condemned. Did he really just say that? In church? I thought it was supposed to be nice. What's going on? Well, just in case they missed it, see, Paul's trying to tell them it's Jesus plus nothing. He repeats it. Look what he says. He says, as we have said before, like in we just said it as we said before, like in the verse right below, before this. So now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, if they're adding anything to Jesus or taking anything away from Jesus, let him be accursed. Let him be condemned in God's sight. That's a harsh word, isn't it? And yet that's what they hear. In fact, uh, this is the theme all the way through where Paul's just trying to get the point across. It's by faith alone. Skip ahead with me to chapter 3, and we read this. Oh, foolish Galatians. There's no well wishes here, is there? It's just, you fools. Who bewitched you? Who fooled you? It, it was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. You, you heard me tell you about Christ. So let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law? Or did you receive the Spirit by hearing the gospel by faith? Which one was it? Was it all your works that the reason God gave you His Spirit and freed you and rescued you and saved you? Or was it because you heard the gospel and you responded in faith? The obvious answer is it was through hearing the gospel and it was by faith. And he's like, are, are you so foolish? 
having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Why are you adding to what Jesus has done? There's nothing to add. In fact, did you suffer so many things in vain? Paul Shirley, when he writes this, he's remembering himself how he got stoned by all the people in Lystra. He suffered greatly, didn't he? And surely the other believers all suffered too. He's like, was that just in vain? Like, you were there? If indeed it was in vain, which he's saying, no, it wasn't in vain. He says, does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? He just keeps repeating this idea that we're saved by faith alone. And then just to be sure that these people who are imposing Jewish law on him, the Judaizers, he goes back to before the law and appeals to Abraham in the Old Testament. Just so he can say, listen, I'm not telling you anything new. Go back to Genesis 15. Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Abraham's righteousness wasn't by doing good works, it was by faith. He simply believed And he was made right with God. It was by his faith alone. So Paul's just dumbfounded that they would add anything to what Christ had done. And and he goes on. He's like, um, uh, later in chapter 5, you were running well. Who hindered you from from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. He's like, I don't know who this guy is or who these people are who are trying to add to the gospel. But man, if I could get my hands on him, that's kind of Paul's MO here, right? He is, he is angry. He said, this is not from God. It's not from him who calls you. And a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Even just a few who are, who are teaching this and adding to the gospel, it's, it's, it's affecting all of you. Then he goes on. He says, I have confidence in the Lord, though, that you'll take no other view and that the one who's troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. I mean, Paul is fired up in this letter. And I have a feeling people were just squirming a little bit that Sunday when this thing was being read. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I being persecuted? You know what Paul's saying there? He's saying if, if I'm... If I'm saying it's by the law and they're saying it's by the law, then why are they coming after me? Because it's not by the law. In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I'm being persecuted because I'm saying Jesus did it all and it's in faith, it's by faith in him alone. He's like, I wish they would quit adding to the gospel. And then this next part, you're going. Whoa, that's really in the Bible? It is. It's really there. See, uh, one of the issues was circumcision, right? We learned about that from Brett last week. And so it it was a mark that was put on the people of God on the eighth day of males after they were born to mark them as God's people. And they were still requiring it, trying to require it for Christians. And Paul's like, if they're just gonna keep adding to it, I wish they would just keep going. I wish those who unsettle you would just emasculate themselves. Just 
just go for broke. You're like, oh, that's in the Bible? Yeah. Here's, here's why I think it's there, why Paul says it. See, they're, they're, they're saying you got to do this, but the problem is that little bit is never enough. And you're going to keep wanting to do more and feeling like it's never enough and keep adding more and more and more to the point that it ends up just hurting you. And it's never enough. Christ has paid it all. We get to the end of the letter. He gives this kind of final farewell. He says, see with what large letters I'm writing to you with my own hand. It's likely, uh, well, it is for sure. Paul had somebody else, uh, dict- he dictated this letter. They wrote it. And then he signs it in his own hand at the end. And he says, see with what large letters. This has led some scholars to think. Some of you maybe know the story of Scripture. You know uh, that Paul had uh, a thorn in the flesh he talks about in his letter to the church in Corinth that he asked for God to take away, but he didn't. This has led some to think that that thorn in the flesh was maybe something to do with his eyesight. You know, when he was on the road to Damascus and scales fell from his eyes, something like scales, that, that maybe he still had some kind of mark physically that affected his eyesight from that moment on. And so when he wrote, he had to do it with large letters so he could even see what he was writing. It's to those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised. And only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law. They put all these things on you and they don't even do it themselves. They just do it to feel good about themselves. But they desire to have you circumcised that you may boast in, that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me, Paul says, to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. See, his whole argument is summed up way back in chapter 2 where he just says, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. To be justified is to be declared right with God. Paul's whole argument is it's by faith alone. Justification is by faith alone because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Nobody will be made right. Like you can never do enough. Never. God says, uh, I'm holy, so be what? Holy. I'm perfect, so be perfect. You can never do it. It's never enough. What Paul's saying is it's by justification, by faith, and the good news is that perfect isn't something you achieve. Perfect is a gift that God gives you. It's a gift. It's the doctrine is called justification by faith. So to help you understand this, we've done this before, but maybe get out your pencil and you can just draw a little triangle on your paper and, and think of it like this. Here's Jesus, right? Jesus lived a perfect life. He's God in the flesh, the God-man. Never sinned. And yet what does Jesus do? He dies on the cross. He pays the penalty for sin, though he himself never sinned. He became sin for us. And he dies on the cross and rises from the grave. And he does that, uh, well, for us, for you and for me. And in his perfect death, perfect life and then death and resurrection, he actually atones, satisfies God the Father's wrath for sin. See, God is perfect, right? And he's not really God if he doesn't deal with sin. Like there is wrath for sin. There is punishment for sin. Not because God's mean, 
but because God's good and perfect and just. I mean, what kind of a God would be good if he never punished and dealt with evil? He wouldn't be. He can't deny himself. And so to satisfy his wrath for, for my sin and your sin, something's got to be paid. Some blood has to be shed for that. And Jesus' death on the cross, he, he never sinned, yet he paid the penalty. And so he made atonement for sin. He satisfied God's wrath. And so now I got the choice. Either I can kind of try to do it all on my own and I'm going to end up paying that same penalty or by God's grace, the Spirit begins working in you and me to where we believe that, yeah, Jesus did all of that. And when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, faith alone in Jesus alone, God's grace is evident in this, that he justifies us. He declares us to be righteous. He declares it. Now let me ask you, what have you and I done in this triangle so far to earn God's favor? Nothing. All you've done is believe. It's by faith alone that we're declared righteous because all of God's wrath passed over me and landed on Christ. And so then Jesus sets me free. He redeems me, redeems you. He sets you free from the burden of sin and from the penalty of sin and from the power of sin. And you're made free. That's why Paul is so confused when he's writing this. Like, didn't you guys get this? Like, it, it was by faith alone in Christ alone that God just declares you righteous. You don't earn it. All you do is have faith. And, and, and Jesus sets you free from these things. So why in the world do you keep going back to them? Why do you keep going back to adding on these things to the gospel? You're free. You're free from the law. Now for you and I, if you're a follower of Jesus, you too, you're free from the law and you're free from religion and you're free from the power of sin in your life. You're free. Paul articulates this uh, also in chapter 2 in this letter to them with a pretty vivid picture. Here's what he says in chapter 2, verse 20. He goes, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, well, I live it by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Let me ask you a question, uh, and this isn't a trick question. When Jesus was crucified, what happened to him? I'm not looking for a deep answer. Like physically, what happened to him when he was crucified? He died. He was dead. He was totally dead. The, the Roman executioners declared him clearly to be dead, put him in the tomb, right? Took him down. He was dead. So when Paul's saying, I've been crucified with Christ, what's he saying? I'm dead. It's no longer me. And being dead then really demonstrates this whole issue of justification by faith. And in a couple ways, if I'm crucified with Christ, that's really kind of a horrible image, but it's, it, it, it frees me from spiritual pride. See, have you noticed dead people don't get report cards? 
Did you know that? If you're dead, you don't get report cards anymore. You're dead. School's over. And Paul says, I'm dead. So it frees me from spiritual pride thinking that, because here's surely what was happening in the churches in Galatia Paul was writing to. When all these things got added to them, some had some spiritual pride and oh, look at how good I am. Look at how well I keep the law compared to them on that side of the room. I mean, just look how, look, look. And they had this pride in their achievement. But the thing is, if you're dead, dead people don't get report cards. And so your hope can't be in your performance or in comparison to anyone else. If you're dead, there's no credit to you. No credit to you. In the same way, it frees you and I from spiritual despair. Because the other side of the coin is there were likely people in Galatia who felt incredible despair because they had, they had believed in Christ and by faith alone, grace alone, they felt this great freedom and this big weight lifted off their shoulders and this is incredible, God's love for me. And then people start coming in and say, no, what did Paul tell you? Yeah, no, let me tell you. Here's what it really is. You actually have to do all these things and, and then he's out to lunch. We've been doing it this way for thousands of years. And so then there's this sense of despair, like I never measure up. I'm never good enough. I'm never going to get it right. And so maybe you just throw the whole thing off anyway and say, I just don't fit in. That's not me. But just like my accomplishments don't distinguish me, if I'm dead in Christ, that means uh, crucified with him, that means my failures don't destroy me either. My failures have all been nailed to the cross with him. It, w- it was my identity, but that identity has been nailed to the cross. And everything that was true of me is no longer true. Because that person's dead. And now I'm in Christ. And so there's freedom from my pride and there's freedom from despair, do you see? And the life I now live, I live by f- faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered himself up for me. Everything about my life now uh, is based on the past accomplishment of Jesus. And if it's past, that means my status never changes before God either. And I'm free. And that's the heart of the gospel. When you start to understand that, it's not about your achievement. It's not about you not measuring. It's about all of Jesus' goodness. And him dying on the cross in your place and in my place and giving you real life. And now there's freedom to live by faith. See, friends, you and I were saved by faith alone, in Christ alone. And we're free from the law. We're free from religion. We're free from whatever other uh, piece people would want to tack on you to say, are you really a Christian? Did you vote this way? Do you go about life this way? Do you dress this way? No, it's Jesus plus nothing. Faith in Jesus Christ alone frees us from the law. But here's the deal. In saying all this, Paul's not saying that holiness doesn't matter. Because saving faith will never stay alone. We're saved by faith alone, but saving faith never stays alone. Here's what Paul writes in chapter 5. He says, uh, Brothers and sisters, you were called to freedom. 
Only don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Don't turn back, but through love, serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And so I say, don't use your freedom to go back, but instead walk by the Spirit in that freedom. You're free from the law and now free to actually honor God with your life in a way that's pleasing to him. Walk by the Spirit. You won't, you won't gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you're led by the Spirit, if you're free, you're not under the law. But if you're led by the Spirit, your saving faith isn't going to stay alone. There's going to be some fruit that grows. The fruit of love and of joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. There's no law against those things. That actually comes through the Spirit working in you. You're saved by faith alone, but then that saving faith it doesn't stay alone. And how do you know if it's saving faith? Well, then there's going to be fruit. It's kind of like, how do you know if the tree in your front yard is an apple tree? If it grows pears, it's not an apple tree. If it grows apples, apple tree. <laughs> if you're a Christian and you're growing fruit like this, you put your faith in Christ alone. Do you see? Here's really another way to think about Paul's argument is the relationship between identity and activity. And I just share this with you because this was really helpful for me after I became a Christian to start to understand what's it look like now to live out my faith. And I, I grew up in a church that was pretty legalistic where it was you had to measure up, you know. And so it was confusing to me then after becoming a Christian. I kind of wanted to go back to some of those things at times. And when I got my mind around some of this and this relationship between identity and activity, it helped me understand justification by faith. Let's see if I can explain it to you. Here's what we're talking about. Identity and activity. By identity, I'll give you a couple things here. Uh, there's a theological term we refer to, ontology. And activity, if you're a nerd and you like theology, economy would be the theological term there. But here's, here's normal language. Identity is who I am. That's what ontology is, your being who you are. It's your identity. Activity, your economy, that's what you do. That's your actions. And so the big question here is what's the relationship between my identity and my activity? Some would teach this. They would say that your activity comes before your identity. That your activity determines your identity that what you do determines who you are. So if I dress like this, if I have this career, if I live like this, if I measure up in this way, then I can achieve this identity. Do you see? And uh, this is really, this is our default. This is the default thinking of all of us in our sinfulness in this room. We think that if we do enough good things, God will like us, or if we get enough, post the right picture and get enough likes on Instagram or on Facebook, then, uh, then I have this identity of I'm loved. 
But here's the problem, and it's a big one with this way of thinking. It's 100% backwards from what the gospel teaches. The gospel teaches just the opposite, that your identity is first received, not achieved, and then that determines your activity. That who you are and who you understand yourself to be, who you think you are, determines what you do. It does. Even in the cases where we think our activity is getting an identity, we're actually living out of a malnourished identity trying to achieve it. Your identity, who you are in Christ, determines what you do. And that identity is a gift. It's received and not achieved. See, the people who were troubling those in Galatia had it flipped. They said, no, God didn't give you a new identity. He'll give it to you once you do all these things. Paul says, no, that's not true. When you put your faith in Jesus Christ and him alone, Jesus makes you new. You're in Christ. You have a new identity. And then the fruit of the Spirit starts to come out of your life. Do you see the difference? One is religion. The other is gospel. And when you follow the gospel, when you have the right identity, your activity follows. The fruit of the Spirit shows up in your life of love and joy and peace and patience, kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control. They all just start growing in your life. And you reflect who you truly are because it flows out of that identity, who you truly are in Christ. That's really the argument of Paul in Galatians, that, friends, you are saved by faith alone in Jesus plus nothing, it's all by faith and by God's grace. You're free from religion. You're free from the law. You're free from all the other things you're trying to add on to it. But your saving faith doesn't stay alone. He gets to the end of Galatians and he says there's going to be fruit in your life Then that's the evidence after you trust Christ, not in a way that earns God's favor. As we wrap up, uh, worship team is going to come up. We're going to sing and call it a morning. Uh, but I just ask you to consider that. Where, where in your world are you trying to achieve that identity? Where are you doing things not because of, out of your new identity, trying to honor God and show love for him, but because you're, really, you're, you're kind of thinking, if I do this, then I'll measure up and then I'll be good enough. But you realize you never measure up. It's never enough. Where do you need to rest in God's grace? Know who you are in Christ. And then allow the fruit of the Spirit to grow and be evidenced in your life. There's a huge difference between those things. And my prayer for you is you'd know that and live that. So as we wrap up, we're going to sing. There's going to be people available up front to talk with you, pray with you, if you need, need anybody to. And um, then we're going to call it a morning. Uh, let me pray and then we'll turn over to Karina.